Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry sound bites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on our latest online selections of important peer-reviewed research and reviews for Part 2 of our January-February 2020 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Cyberbullying is a topic of considerable mainstream media attention. Research on cyberbullying has suggested that this phenomenon does indeed occur, but there is considerable controversy about its prevalence. In this study, data on the prevalence of social media utilization and cyberbullying victimization were collected from 50 inpatients, aged 13 to 17 years, at an acute care adolescent psychiatric hospital. Subjects completed two surveys assessing childhood trauma, the Trauma Symptom Checklist for Children and the Childhood Trauma Questionnaire, or CTQ, as well as the Cyberbullying Questionnaire. The authors found that in 20% of patients, cyberbullying had occurred immediately preceding admission. These individuals had evidence of more severe symptoms, but most importantly, they also had evidence of a previous history of emotional abuse as indexed by the CTQ. These data suggest that adolescents who have been traumatized previously may have an increased risk for involvement in activities that lead to cyberbullying. Individuals who develop tardive dyskinesia, or TD, often experience embarrassment and distress, which can lead to social withdrawal. Some TD symptoms can produce substantial functional impairment. While TD was expected to vanish due to more widespread use of second-generation antipsychotics, in reality, more patients than ever are at risk for developing this condition. In this CME Academic Highlights section, supported by Neuroquine Biosciences, learn from experts Dr. Joseph McAvoy and Dr. Daniel Kremens as they discuss early detection and diagnosis of TD, educating patients and family about risk factors, addressing psychosocial concerns related to the condition, and selecting one of the novel FDA-approved medications to treat TD symptoms. To read this academic highlights and take the CME post-test, please visit the January-February table of contents at psychiatrist.com. Buprenorphine is a partial agonist opioid that is prescribed as medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorder, but also has applications for pain control, especially in surgery. This presents a conundrum for treating patients who need surgery but have a history of opioid use disorder and are taking buprenorphine. How can patients get through surgery without risk of relapse and still get enough pain medicine during and after the operation? Previous thinking on this question entailed tapering the patient off buprenorphine before surgery, giving them opioids in hospital, and then converting them back to buprenorphine. However, substance use disorder specialists and patients felt this approach was too disruptive and anesthesiologists, surgeons, and patients were worried about pain management. To address these issues, a multidisciplinary group of clinicians from Massachusetts General Hospital recently convened to generate a guideline for appropriate management of these patients. 
Read their article to learn about the specifics of their strategy, which is based on both scientific evidence and experience with treating patients. This article is freely available online. Please visit the January-February table of contents at psychiatrist.com. Postpartum depression is among the most common morbidities of the perinatal period, affecting approximately 12 to 13 percent of women in developed countries. The long-term consequences of unresolved postpartum depression include impaired functioning, limited attachment to the infant, suicidal ideation, and self-harm. In light of this, screening for depression using a validated tool such as the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale is recommended. It is important that clinicians understand risk factors for postpartum depression in order to identify women who may need closer monitoring. In one of our CME offerings for this issue, researchers from Stanford University used one of the largest U.S. cohorts representing all 50 states in a data set of over 300,000 pregnancies to compare risk for postpartum depression across multiple past psychiatric diagnoses. They found that a history of depression confers the greatest risk, but all of the other prior psychiatric conditions investigated, including anxiety disorders, panic disorders, bipolar disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and eating disorders were significantly positively associated with postpartum depression even after controlling for comorbid depression diagnosis. These findings suggest that providers should inquire about psychiatric history to support close monitoring of women at high risk for postpartum depression. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the January-February table of contents at psychiatrist.com. Physical exercise is a promising treatment modality for late-life depression. It can help with physical comorbidities often seen in older age with reducing risk of falls and by improving physical function. However, although physical exercise has been recommended for older adults since at least 2008, no decrease in late-life depression rates was noted over this period, and clinical trials on this topic show large differences. In this meta-analysis, the authors explored this gap in the literature to find evidence for the effect of physical exercise on depressive symptoms in older adults. They focused on trials with a specific defined dose of exercise and assessed the sources of heterogeneity among included studies. Definition of the exercise dose focused on the type of exercise, as well as intensity, duration per session, frequency per week, and total length of the intervention. Variables of the exercise intervention that were considered included supervision and attendance. Additionally, population-related variables such as age, physical ability, and cognitive function at baseline were observed. Overall, the study confirms a moderate effect for this narrow-dose definition of physical exercise in reducing depressive symptoms in older adults. However, some variables such as being over 80 years of age and exhibiting cognitive impairment at baseline may impact the effectiveness of physical exercise. Based on these findings, the authors recommend that future studies focus on narrow-dose definition of physical exercise and tailor the intervention to specific subpopulations of older adults, 
taking into consideration their age and physical and cognitive functioning. Among people who experience trauma, how common is it for individuals to experience post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD symptoms that fall below the formal DSM criteria? As it turns out, quite common. In this study supported by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, the authors examine the prevalence and correlates of probable subthreshold DSM-4 PTSD in 9-11 World Trade Center responders approximately 12 years after September 11, 2001. The participants fell into two groups, 2,029 police responders and 2,167 non-traditional responders, including utility workers, construction workers, custodians, volunteers, and others. In police, the prevalence of sub-threshold PTSD was 17.5%, and the prevalence of full PTSD was 9.3%. In non-traditional responders, sub-threshold PTSD prevalence was 24.1%, and full PTSD prevalence was 21.9%. Responders with sub-threshold PTSD had elevated rates of functional impairment, alcohol use problems, and comorbid depression, though lower rates than those of responders with full PTSD. Interestingly, additional life stressors, medical problems, Additional traumas and stressful events were associated with increased odds of sub-threshold or full PTSD. These findings underscore the limitations of DSM criteria in assessing PTSD symptoms. In this sample, there were more responders with sub-threshold PTSD than full PTSD, Individuals with sub-threshold PTSD also had elevated rates of functional impairment and screened positive for psychiatric comorbidities. The authors conclude that psychological suffering and impairment might be overlooked if evaluation is based only on formal DSM criteria for PTSD. This study confirms the importance of assessing monitoring, and possibly treating sub-threshold PTSD in World Trade Center and other disaster responders. It can be very difficult to distinguish between patients with a psychiatric disorder and those with the behavioral variant of frontotemporal dementia, or FTD, as there are many overlapping symptoms. These include behavioral changes such as disinhibition, apathy, reduced empathy, and compulsive behavior. In a CME offering for this issue, a recent study from Amsterdam investigated the diagnostic value of non-invasive neuropsychological tests to distinguish between these disorders so that patients can receive appropriate care or treatment earlier. Of a large test battery, the authors found that a language test, specifically a picture naming test, was the best able to differentiate between groups with psychiatric disorders and groups with behavioral FTD. High scores corresponded to a psychiatric diagnosis, and low scores corresponded to a behavioral FTD diagnosis.
This is surprising because language functions are initially spared in behavioral FTD and patients with apparent language problems were excluded. However, many patients develop semantic language problems as the disease progresses and it appears that the naming test was sensitive enough to pick up subtle deficits that did not yet show in daily conversations. The authors therefore recommend administering language tests, especially an extensive naming test, to aid differentiation between behavioral FTD and psychiatric disorders in patients presenting with late-onset frontal behavioral changes. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the January-February table of contents at psychiatrist.com. From our CME Institute, we continue our series of new and recent online CME brief reports. Tardive dyskinesia, a condition of potentially irreversible abnormal involuntary movements that is associated with dopamine receptor blocking agents, produces significant impairment of functioning and quality of life for patients. What steps do you take when patients exhibit tardive dyskinesia? Are you familiar with treatment guidelines and data? unapproved and non-approved strategies. Explore recommendations from Dr. Daniel Kremens in this online CME brief report supported by Neurocrine Biosciences. To read this brief report and take the CME post-test, please visit the January-February table of contents at psychiatrist.com. Which medications can improve the various motor and non-motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease? How common are motor fluctuations and dyskinesias over time? And how are non-motor symptoms such as psychosis managed? In this online CME brief report, supported by Biogen, Lundbeck, and Synovian, Dr. Stuart Isaacson offers strategies to address multiple treatment challenges posed by the illness. To read this brief report and take this CME post-test, please visit the January-February table of contents at psychiatrist.com. Updated guidelines are available for maintenance treatment of bipolar disorder, and using these guidelines can help clinicians make treatment decisions. In this online CME brief report supported by Otsuka, Expert Dr. Tricia Supis describes the recommendations and also discusses situations when the higher-ranked treatment options may not be used. She offers two case illustrations. To read this brief report and take the CME post-test, please visit the January-February table of contents at psychiatrist.com. And last in our series of brief reports. Tardive dyskinesia, or TD, must be detected early to minimize the risk of this iatrogenic movement disorder becoming permanent. Some patients will not realize they have it until the severity worsens. Which patients have modifiable risk factors for TD? Do you know how often to screen and how to conduct an evaluation? Dr. Stephen Sacklad provides a refresher in this online CME brief report supported by Teva. To read this brief report and take the CME post-test, please visit the January-February table of contents at psychiatrist.com. In a recent installment of his clinical and practical psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrades discusses a study suggesting that angiotensin receptor blockers are associated with suicide risk. 
His analysis of the study design will help readers draw their own conclusions about the findings. Another installment of this column looks at a recent study of transcranial direct current stimulation for negative symptoms in schizophrenia. Here, Dr. Andrade demonstrates the importance of outcome measure selection. The full text of these columns is freely available online. Please visit the January-February table of contents at psychiatrist.com. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. You can view the newest online offerings from Part 2 of the January-February 2020 issue on the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.